Did you know the Tribeca Festival showcases more than just film and TV? Tribeca's audio storytelling program, sponsored by Audible, is happening June 9th to June 13th in NYC. It includes premieres of new indie podcasts, plus exclusive live tapings of popular podcasts like Slow Burn, Criminal with special guest Melissa McCarthy, and Vibe Check with special guest Lena Waithe. Don't miss it. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. Get ready to laugh out loud at the Tribeca Festival, June 5th to June 16th in NYC. Experience hilarious talks, comedy specials, and feel-good films with your fan-favorite comedians like Hannah Einbinder, Judd Apatow, Neil Patrick Harris, Tig Notaro, and more. You have to be there. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Ezra Klein Show. My guest today is Deborah Tannen, who is a really fascinating linguist whose work has really changed the way I think about politics and my own management and to some degree my relationships over the last year. She studies and, and has really revolutionized the study of the differences in how men and women communicate. She's done deep research into how they communicate at home in the workplace, over the dinner table. And and what she's found is really fascinating. She's really pushed, as you'll hear in this discussion, the idea that linguistics is capable of answering many of the same questions and solving many of the same problems as psychology, that much of what we think are ill intentions, much of what ends up in hurt are actually miscommunications or actually differences in communication style that can be understood and mitigated. It is a, a, a fascinating kind of work. She's written a bunch of best-selling books, including You Just Don't Understand Women and Men in Conversation. And she's also been a fascinating election commentator. So, so we talk in this podcast not just about how women and men communicate in the workplace, not just about linguistics and, and how she became a linguist and what the nature of the work is, but also about Hillary Clinton and, and this election and the ways in which gender has crept into our analysis of both candidates and how it's likely to creep into our analysis of a Hillary Clinton administration, how she might govern differently, how women and male bosses actually lead organizations differently. This is a, a little bit of an unusual podcast, I think, in that it manages to both cover politics in a way that is interesting, but it also has a lot in here that will be relevant to your everyday life, to your work. It has very much been relevant to mine. So as always, before jumping in, got a couple quick things for you. Please share this podcast. Rate it on iTunes. I really appreciate it when you rate it on iTunes, but share it on Twitter. Tell people you're enjoying it. Tell a friend. Tell your mother. Number two, check out our other podcast, The Weeds, where Matt Iglesias, Sarah Cliff, and I talk about policy. Our most recent episode is about whether Obamacare is failing. I think a lot of you will be fascinated by it. And of course, continue emailing me at EzraKleinShow at Vox.com with guest suggestions, feedback, whatever you might want me to know. And one other thing, Vox.com has a bunch of great open jobs right now, including a staff writer position covering the economy and technology and the intersection there, an editor position on the same topic, a staff writer position and our foreign team, and many, many, many other jobs that I think folks listening to this podcast will be interested in, maybe a great fit for. So go to VoxMedia.com and check out our careers page. Again, that is voxmedia.com to check out our careers page. If you like this podcast and our podcast in general, we may enjoy working together. With that said, here is Deborah Tannen. Deborah Tannen, thank you so much for being on the show. Such a pleasure to be here. So tell me a little bit about how you came to do the work you, you do. You're a linguist. And, and when did you know 
Wait, as a little girl, were you wanting to grow up as a linguist? I am kind of maybe not that unusual for a woman, but somewhat unusual. I began grad school in linguistics at the age of 30. So, no, I did not know from the very beginning that that's what I wanted to do. Um, I was quite a product of the 60s when I graduated college. The only thing I knew was that I didn't want to stay in this country, and I wanted to do something exotic. Interesting. I worked, yeah, I worked for a short time, saved money, went to Europe on a one-way ticket, ended up in Greece where I taught English um, as a second language, and after living there for a year and a half— Ended up coming back to the United States and was working for a while at Metropolitan Life Insurance Company as a claims adjuster. I got bored. I got a master's in English, taught remedial writing and freshman composition. This takes me to the age of 29. Again, I was bored and um, had heard about linguistics. I didn't really know what it was, but I knew it was about language, and I'd always loved language. I was more a literary type, Mm -hmm. you know, editor of the— literary magazine in college, that kind of thing. So I want to I back up to something you said a second ago, because I feel like a lot got packed <laughs> into the clause, I was a product of the 60s. Yeah. Where did you go to college? What was, what was that milieu like for you at the time? Oh, yes. I went to a small college that no longer exists. It was called Harper College. It was part of the State University of New York system, but a small liberal arts college. The entire student body was 1,400. It has since been enveloped inside Binghamton University, but that's a school of 17,000, so it doesn't have a lot to do with the place I went. It was upstate New York. I'm from Brooklyn. It was where you could go. It was the only small liberal arts college within the state system where if you got a region scholarship, which was a state program, you everybody took a test, and if you passed, you got a region scholarship, which would pay your tuition, but you had to stay in New York State so it was pretty much where I was going to go. Oh, it was such a time. Um, what, what time are we at here? 1962 to 1966. Okay. It was during those years that I went to—I I teach at Georgetown, and they asked me had I ever been in Washington, and I said only for peace marches and other protests. <laughs> it was from there that we took buses down to the Martin Luther King I Have a Dream speech demonstration. I was there— yeah, it was very much activist, and I was not going to go to grad school. That was one thing I was sure of, but I was going to do something exotic. Were you a radical? Um, I don't think it was considered radical at the time. Yeah, I guess I was, but I did not go for the really extreme protests. I mean, yeah, we went on demonstrations right. and marched for peace and freedom. and But it um, wasn't burn the system down. No, no. Yeah, it was against the Vietnam War. It was for, um, as that march was, for peace and freedom, for civil rights. But I was not so active that I didn't go on a um, what the freedom ride down south. Uh-huh. Friends of mine did, and I felt a bit chicken that I didn't. So talk to me a bit about when you enter linguistics graduate school, which you do, you say, without too much background in what the discipline is. What is your first exposure to it? What is your working definition of it early on? Yeah, I can tell you pretty straightforward how I got hooked on linguistics. So I'm 29, bored with what I'm doing, thought maybe I could be a lawyer. My father was. Maybe I should get a PhD in in English literature because my BA and MA were in that. 
But I heard this word linguistics, and I knew that it was about language, and that's pretty much all I knew, but it was intriguing. I went to a summer institute at the University of Michigan, and you know how sometimes the stars just align? That summer and that summer only, it was not about the formal linguistics. It was called language in context, and it was about language in everyday life. And I think it was kind of a zeitgeist at the time, again, part of the 60s. In many disciplines, they were turning to studying everyday life. I think it was going on in sociology and, and philosophy as well at the same time. And I took a course, took several courses, but there was one with Robin Lakoff, names should ring a bell. Mm-hmm. And she was actually one of the first people to write about language and gender, but it wasn't that aspect of her work that really caught my attention. She talked about communicative style and how people show their polite by using different linguistic means and could misunderstand each other if they have different approaches, different conversations, what she called communicative styles. And it was that work of hers that just totally blew my mind, and I realized language could be the key to so many things that people were thinking of as psychology. Well, so that's interesting. I, yeah. So here I had been living in Greece and had been experiencing cross-cultural communication for the last couple of years. And my parents, though both both born in Europe, my father born in Poland, my mother born in Russia, in many ways had very different conversational styles, both the gender but other influences too, I think. And I suddenly saw that you could use language as a way to understand what's going on between people rather than psychology. And in a flash, decided that's what I needed to do with my life. And I applied to grad school in Berkeley. Happily, I was accepted. And I never looked back. There's a a lot I, I want to follow up on there. <laughs> so talk to me a little bit about, well, maybe to make it concrete, because I know this part of your work as a way to get into this question of, of where it intersects with psychology, maybe talk a bit about the work you've done around the New Yorker communication style and let's say the non-New Yorker communication style, because I think that is a useful way into this. Yes. Now, that was my doctoral dissertation and my first book. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah. So I had decided for my dissertation that I wanted to study everyday conversation, and I was taping every conversation that I was part of and considering which Must one? have been great fun to, to be around <laughs> you in those days. I wasn't the only one. <laughs> we were all doing it. There was one one dinner that one of our professors, his name was Wally Chafe, one of our professors invited about six of us grad students to his house for dinner. And after dinner, we discovered every one of us was taping secretly. <laughs> and the professor himself had hidden a tape recorder under under the table. And he had taped it, too. That, that that feels like what you'd call a confounding variable. Everybody is speaking to their own tape recorder, but thinking everyone else is speaking freely and naturally. I think we were speaking freely and naturally, first of all, because we were doing it all the time. Okay. Uh, and secondly, this is one of the kind of principles of studying ourselves. In a social gathering that's going on for a couple of hours, there's no way you're going to keep that tape recorder in mind. Huh. The social interaction takes over and... These are your friends and... It's true. It's a theory of podcasting, too. If we just make this long enough, eventually. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there you go. Exactly. So I was taping conversations and hadn't decided which one of all the ones I was taping I would use. And my goal was analyze every individual in the conversations, conversational style. That's the term that I kind of developed, building on Lakoff's communicative style. 
I would analyze what went into each person's conversational style and how did those styles affect the interaction. I ended up picking a two and a half hour Thanksgiving dinner conversation. People in my field all know about Thanksgiving dinner conversation. And I was going to look at each individual's conversational style. It turned out that three of us were New Yorkers and of Jewish, Eastern European Jewish background. So myself from Brooklyn, and I just mentioned my parents' background, my best friend, whose name is Carl, his brother, Paul, they were from the Bronx, and grandparents, Eastern European Jewish extraction. So three New York Jewish speakers. There were two Californians and a British woman whose father actually was Jewish, but her style was was British. Well, it turned out that I couldn't really tell you much about the styles of the three non-New Yorkers because they didn't get to really express their styles. <laughs> <laughs> they had a hard time getting the floor. And when they did get the floor, <laughs> they would often be overlapped. I could say interrupted, except that's one of the points that I make, that when you say interruption, you're making a value judgment about who had a right to the floor and who was stealing it. Whereas the New York Jewish speakers often talked over each other, but it was not an interruption. We would often do that as a way of showing enthusiastic listenership. And this trick was, this is a balancing act. So if the speaker isn't finished, they don't stop. And that's a very interesting theoretical point about what is an interruption. Unpack that for a minute. If the speaker isn't finished, they don't stop. Yeah, yeah. So I make the point, and this all came up from my analysis. It isn't something I knew going in. Mm -hmm. I recorded, recorded it, transcribed it in great detail, measured the pauses with a stopwatch. Now it can be done electronically. You can even get them online, a program, and it'll measure the pauses. But often if a person was speaking, if a New Yorker was speaking, and somebody else wanted to say something, they would overlap. They would talk on the end of the sentence. But if the first person didn't want to stop at that point, he just didn't stop. And so the one who had overlapped would back off. It wasn't their intention to take the floor if the speaker didn't want to give it up. It's a way of finding out if the speaker is done mm -hmm. and willing to give it up because it's a conversational style where you don't want silence. If there's big open spaces, you feel like the conversation isn't going very well and it's, it's winding down. So part of being a good conversationalist is being ready to add your thoughts and then you trust the other person to not stop if they didn't want to give up the floor. Of course, it didn't work with the Californians because <laughs> at the first sound of vocalization from somebody else, they would stop. And that is so fascinating because who created the interruption? Of course, the one who stops thinks this is someone who stopped just mm -hmm. because they think only one voice can go at a time. And they hear somebody else talking and they stop. They think they've been interrupted. But from the point of view of the cooperative overlapper, term that I used to describe it. They interrupted themselves. They shouldn't have stopped if they didn't want to. <laughs> so this to me, as a cooperative overlapper, I think it, I think it's fair to call myself, it rang incredibly true. What struck me as really interesting was the idea that different folks from different regions have different levels of comfort with silence. And that when you merge people with different levels of comfort with silence, what you got was confusion, feelings of rudeness, feelings that the conversation had stalled. I'm a Californian who is typically mistaken for a New Yorker. 
because of, uh, among other things, probably these the speech patterns. And I often find that I think somebody is done talking and then they're not. And then I feel terrible because I accidentally interrupted them. But I had misjudged the situation. The amount of time they were comfortable being silent was less time than I was comfortable with them being silent in between a thought. Yeah, this is, quote, right out of my study and the kind of thing that I wrote about. So you're absolutely right. Part of it is comfort with silence, but part of it is what length of pause do you define as a silence and how long a pause do you think is normal between turns? So the unintentional interruption can happen it isn't only New Yorkers and Californians. I mean, it could be somebody from Maine and somebody from from California. Then the person from Maine is going to get interrupted. And I, I have this example of um, a colleague who was from Michigan, so I would constantly misjudge and think he was done when he wasn't and interrupt mm-hmm. him. His wife was Chinese from Hawaii. So his idea of a pause was shorter than hers, so he would constantly be interrupting her. They went and did field work in Alaska. Well, Alaskan natives have very long pauses. And so she was the one who'd be interrupting and seen (laughs) as a conversational bulldozer in Alaska. So it's relative. It's always relative. It's not a matter of long pause, short pause. It's a matter of whether the person you're talking to is expecting a longer or shorter pause than you are. And that basic phenomenon that you described, that your intentions are good, but you've just misread the cues, is really the starting point of all the research I've done. And as I said, I started it from the perspective of cross-cultural communication, but it's the same thing that, that I later ended up applying to the gender difference and approaching conversations between women and men as cross-cultural communication. And the reason it's so frustrating is this feeling that you're being accused of bad intentions when you know your intentions were good. And if it's a close relationship, somebody you really care about, and often these differences do arise, both gender and ethnic, regional, class, all those differences affect these conversational styles. But if it's somebody you're in a close relationship with, it's really upsetting because they should understand you if anyone does. I would say that when I've thought of linguistics as a discipline traditionally, I've thought of the work Noam Chomsky does about universal grammar and the work of, to some degree, George Lakoff, who you know did work that I'm actually a bit skeptical of, but about political communication. And I'm curious how much that was a shift in the discipline that was broader, this idea that it was a way of reinterpreting and re-understanding interpersonal dynamics, or was this unusual to your research. What was the context for that? Yeah. And by the way, I mentioned Robin Lakoff as right. the linguist that had inspired me to go Right, which is an interesting... They were married at that mm-hmm. time. Yeah. It was 1974 that I... 73 that I went to an institute. Mm-hmm. But shortly after that, they were separated. I think it was, as I mentioned, a zeitgeist that of turning attention to everyday interaction... The field that really caught my attention might be called interactional sociolinguistics, sociolinguistics being kind of the intersection of linguistics and study of social interaction. So in the late 60s, early 70s, it was really being developed by a number of people at the intersection of fields, and that often is the case. So sociologists and anthropologists who were also linguists or were at least studying language were among the first that did that. 
one of the other people that really influenced me at Berkeley was someone named John Gumpers. His degree is in linguistics, but he was in an anthro department at Berkeley. And he was studying conversations between British speakers of British English and speakers of Indian English, that is, people from India who were native speakers of English in England, and those kinds of misunderstandings. And I mentioned Wally Chafe was another one of my professors, had been a linguist, had been studying semantics and other aspects of language, but just at that time was getting interested in how do people tell about things that have happened in their everyday lives? How do they describe events that they've seen? So one of my early projects in grad school was working with him. So I think there was just a um, part of a general movement at the time to apply these more technical fields to everyday life. Talk to me a bit then about how that transitions into, I think, the part of the book you're best known for about, about male and female communication, because that, that, that book feels very much like it is trying to solve some of the problems that lead to people ending up in a psychologist office. Yes, I think you're quite right. I probably should also mention another very prominent sociolinguist at the time who's was at that conference, that uh, summer institute that I went to, and although I didn't end up going in that field, it's revealing. His name was William LeBeuf. He was studying the grammar of what we then called Black English, now would be called African-American vernacular English. And part of his motive was social justice, that Black kids in school, he did his work in New York City, were being told that their grammar was was bad, that they didn't know how to speak. Even more, they were being told they had no concepts, like they don't know what it means to be because they didn't have the verb is in their sentence. And he was able to show that the variety of English that they were speaking that was common in inner-city neighborhoods um, among African-American neighborhoods was completely role-governed. It followed its own rules. And I think it was was pretty influential in the schools well, at that time. To ask about that moment yeah. in time for a minute, because you would know a lot more about it than, than I do, but I've always been been fascinated. I grew up in Southern California, and that was a debate that really took place, I think, in, in L.A., in that area, about whether, and I think Oakland as well, about whether yes. or not schools would teach um, African-American vernacular. And, and as I understand it, part of the argument at that time was they they found and were able to show pretty conclusively that if you could teach African-American children using a dialect they were more familiar with, they would have more comprehension. They would be better for their learning outcomes. And that got more or less destroyed by a normative view that even if that is true, it's still quote unquote wrong. You're right. And the, I would correct one one, Please, of, the, yes, one of the ways you said it. You said that people wanted to teach African-American varieties of English. They weren't teaching that per se. They were teaching in that in it, I'm variety, sorry. Yes. Right? right. So, yeah, the way you talked about it was quite right. The idea was that if kids are being taught in a language that isn't familiar to them and that is different from their language. Mm-hmm. And there's also, I don't know if this point was made so much then, but there's an implication your language is bad. Mm-hmm. And anytime you're telling kids what you do is bad, it's going to affect their ability to learn. Yeah. So you're absolutely right. And there was lots of evidence that if you use the language that's familiar to them as a medium of instruction, they would do better in school. This has always struck me in retrospect as a tremendous way certain kinds of privilege play out in society where we refuse to teach 
children in the ways that are most natural for them to learn and then blame them for the educational outcomes they attain. It's so true. By the way, I, I understand there's a, I've just done the way over here, was listening on the radio. There's a ballot initiative right now in California to overturn the ban against bilingual education because that was part of the same movement mm -hmm. to allow kids to be taught in the language they know and learn English as they were going. And there was a backlash that they should only be allowed to learn in English that meant often they couldn't understand what the teachers were telling them about math because they didn't understand what language being spoken to them. Of course, African-American English is not like a different language. It's right. not that the kids wouldn't understand it. But So okay. have, having mentioned that, so <laughs> yeah. back to this, this work, yeah. I'm curious to hear a little bit about what were the fundamental communication differences that you began to find? I find that one of the difficulties in the news business is we often focus on the new findings, but what are the foundational findings in your work, the things on which other pieces of it are built? The foundational building blocks, and this would be for conversational style across cultures as well as gender as mm -hmm. culture. When we talk, we think about the meanings that we want to get across. But in order to verbalize them, we have to make a whole slew of decisions about how to say what we mean. Little things like the words that we choose, the pronunciation of those words, the rhythm and music of the sentence, how direct or indirect we're going to be. You know, am I going to say to you, hey, it's cold in here. Shut that door. Or it's kind of cold in here. And I look around mm -hmm. and see if you get the idea on your own <laughs> to get up and close the door. So directness, indirectness. What are we going to joke about? What kind of joke do we think is appropriate? How do you make that joke? Sarcasm, irony. What are you going to tell stories about? How are you going to get to the point of the story? All these things. I call them conversational style, but all these things just seem self-evidently the way to say what you mean. But they differ because of all the influences on you when you were learning language growing up. You learn language both grammar and the lexicon at the same time that you learn all these ways about how to use language. And it varies by ethnicity, region, class, gender, and a whole range of other things, certainly sexual orientation and kind of work that you or your parents do, and all these things affect the ways you use language. So that's the bottom line. That's how language works. When you talk to someone whose conversational style is fairly similar to yours, you're going to probably get a pretty good idea of what they meant when they said something and the conclusions you draw about them as people, their abilities and their intentions toward you, probably going to be pretty accurate. To the extent that conversational styles are different because of any of those influences, the conclusions you draw may well not be accurate. And the conclusions they're drawing about you may not be accurate. So that's the starting point for both all the stuff I did on cross-cultural communication, as well, and I did some on Greek versus American, of course, since I've lived in Greece and I speak Greek, and certainly the uh, gender. And, and let's dig into well. the gender path of it. So talk to me a bit about that book. What was the project of it, and what was the theme of the takeaway? Yeah. I will back up to the point of saying the first book that I wrote for non-academic audiences was not about gender. It was called That's Not What I Meant. And it was just what I told you. It was laying out all these fundamentals of conversational style. Mm -hmm. 
So I talked about framing, you know, how you frame your, which is something that goes back to Gregory Bateson, anthropologist, how you signal what you think you're doing when you say something. That's framing, as well as indirectness, directness, all these other aspects of conversational style. I had one chapter on gender, and it wasn't my own research. It was work that others had done comparing women and men. Especially, there were two anthropologists, Danny Maltz and Ruth Borker, who had come to Berkeley when I was a grad student there to work with John Gumpers, the person that I was, uh, was one of my professors there. And they're the ones that, that said, that got the idea that his framework could explain the kinds of patterns people had observed between women and men and kids. A lot of the research was on kids. So I was drawing a lot on their work and the work of others in that chapter. I had had tremendous ambition for the book, That's Not What I Meant, that this was going to open everybody's eyes, that things that they thought were all about psychology could really just be language. You know, you think somebody's hostile. What does hostile mean? It may just mean that they're using this conversational style by which they're more direct than you expect. And the book did okay. <laughs> it didn't take over the world, didn't change the world. And so I lowered my expectations. And I remember a friend of mine, a colleague, um, actually another author, had said, you know, the point is just for the book to do well enough that they let you write another book. <laughs> and I thought that made sense. <laughs> so I was going to go back to writing one academic book, one for general audiences, and alternate them. So I did write a very technical academic book after that's not what I meant. And then I turn to the topic of gender because that seemed to be the one that everybody wanted to hear about. It seemed to be the aspect of the conversational style book that got the most attention. And so I figured, okay, I'll do the gender story and then I'll go do something else. But it kind of blew up out of proportion, <laughs> took over. And so coming out of that first mainstream book, you look at the market feedback and you say, okay, I'm going to do this book on gender. Where do you start? What was the thread in the book, in, in the first book, that you're able to follow up on? Tracing back to the kids and that you could look at the patterns and that people who studied children at play had found distinguished girls and boys at play. And, and I think this was really my contribution from that. Take those patterns and project them onto the adult conversations that I had been observing, hearing about, hearing people complain about. You know, the question, why don't men stop and ask for directions, actually comes from that book. Nobody had ever talked about huh. that. I had never heard it mentioned. <laughs> and a lot of people know that it comes from that book. You just don't understand. And they send me jokes and, you know, cocktail napkins, real men don't ask directions. <laughs> so it's quite astonishing that that has entered the public discourse that way. But the pattern of the kids, people that had studied kids, this is what they described. Kids tend to play with other kids of the same sex if they have the option. Mm -hmm. Different if you've got brothers, sisters, cousins. And typically, a little girl has a best friend. They spend a lot of time sitting and talking. The center of their social life is that best friendship. A lot of what they're talking about is telling secrets. Your best friend is one you tell everything to. So talk is the... A term I used to always say, talk is the glue that holds the relationship together. They negotiate their friendships by who they tell what to. You hear that girls are clicky. If they don't like a girl, they lock her out. 
And that's true. And part of the reason they do that is because you can't tell secrets in front of somebody you don't want to be friends with. Another aspect of the girls' playgroups is they really don't like a girl who tries to tell the other girls what to do, seems to think she's better than the others. They'll really they'll criticize her boy. She thinks she's something, which is, you know, like the worst thing you can say about a girl. <laughs> and this is—I'm talking about cultures— basically the United States culture, although there's so many differences within that culture that there's—what I'm saying is not going to be true for everybody. And nothing I say is true for everybody. It's really important to say that, too. It's not 100 percent versus zero percent. Yeah, I love asking for directions, yeah. for instance. And, uh, and, and by the way— <laughs> Not <when> all I, <laughs> men. I should say, when I give lectures on this topic, uh-huh. I always start with directions because I have several jokes that I tell relevant to that. Always good to start with a joke. And then I say— in my family, my husband is the one who always wants to stop and ask directions, and I don't like to. And it's important to keep in mind that there are exceptions to right. everything. Okay. So, which is why when I put that example in the book, I had no idea why, how widespread it was. Absolutely no idea. It was one example. I'll give you an idea of my, my research methods. I had said to my friend Susan, was visiting and staying. She lived in Arizona. She was visiting, and I said, Susan, what do you and Wes argue about? <laughs> and she said, Oh, yeah, you know, sometimes we argue because he won't stop in his directions, and then we get lost, and we spend hours, and, and I think, well, why don't you just ask? So I thought to myself, well, why would that be? And I asked her what he says, and she said, well, he says, if you ask somebody, they won't know, and they'll tell you the wrong thing. Oh, interesting. <laughs> and there's some truth to that. So I'll get back to directions and tell you how that fits in the pattern that people came up with. So the... Girls tend to play in smaller groups. Talk is central, and they don't like a girl who seems better than the others and seems to think she's better or tells the others what to do. She's bossy. They don't want to play with her. Boys tend to play in larger groups. It's the activity that's central. Your best friend is the one you do everything with. They are using language, but it isn't so much to tell secrets and uh, you know exchange you don't see little boys whispering in each other's ears the way you do with little girls. They seem to be using language to negotiate their status in the group. So try to take center stage by boasting, you know, all the things girls are not supposed to do, saying what you're good at, and trying to knock off center stage the kid who has it now. So you're kind of nipping at his heels. The boy who tells the other boys what to do and gets it to stick is the leader, whereas for the girls, you know, she's she's ostracized or at least disliked, or if there's a fight, he'll be on my side. So it's a very different uh, approach to the place of talk in the relationship. And that, in my view, explained a lot of the kinds of complaints that I was hearing from women and men about close relationships. So one of them is this constant end-of-day conversation frustration. She tells about what happened. who she met, what they said, what that made her think, what that made her feel. And then she says, and how was your day? And he says, okay. Did anything happen? No. Same old rat race. Then you go out to dinner with a couple of other couples, and suddenly he's regaling the table with something funny that happened at work. And she's hurt. You know, the way I sometimes put it, I put it in the book this way, you're supposed to be a new and improved version of a best friend. We tell each other everything. So I shouldn't be hearing something important like this from, you know, as one among a bunch of strangers. What am I, top liver? You should have told me first. Why did you say nothing? How could you say nothing when this was going on? 
By the way, I mentioned this in my class just the other day. We were talking about this, and a woman in the class burst out laughing because she had just witnessed a big argument between her sister and the sister's husband because the father asked a question and this husband told the father something that he had not told his wife, and she was really hurt. You know, you're supposed to tell me first. How come you didn't tell me? And he said, well, you didn't ask. (laughs) So this assumption that you're going to tell everything and that's a sign of closeness grows directly out of how the girls are using language as kids in their friendships. And it is alien to the way the boys are using language among their friends as kids. So that would be one example. And I think it goes out from there in many, many interesting ways. So a lot of men will feel... If you're upset about something at work, you don't really want to take it home. You know, leave it there. Why should I wallow in it? Talking about it would just make me feel bad all over again. So there's this kind of ritual called troubles talk. I didn't invent the term that a lot of what women do is troubles talk. You feel less alone if you talk about your problem and the other person says, yeah, I know the same thing happened to me. Or they just show that they care by asking you questions about it. And then what did he say? And then what did you think? And you ask follow-up questions. Because it's not the kind of conversation that most men have had growing up, they often think that they're being asked to provide a solution. And so... If they do, and the woman's annoyed, don't tell me what to do, then both are frustrated. It goes right back to what I described at the beginning. Your intentions are good. You're doing what you were just asked to do, right? If you told me about your problem, you must have wanted a solution. Why else would you talk about it? Because that ritual of troubles talk is not one that he's used to. So that's just one example of how that approach played out. One of the the things you you told me about that I've thought a lot about since that conversation is the idea that a lot of stereotypically female conversation is along a closeness dimension, trying to, you know, as you say, tell secrets to show where people's status is in the relationship. And that a lot of male communication is along a hierarchy dimension, trying to show that you are of higher status than, than the other person. And in a funny way, and this might be my own communication style, the closeness one was much more intuitive to me, that that I felt like that's a level that I see it very clearly. But the hierarchy one, which potentially I do more of, was less visible to me and, um, and felt like something I hadn't heard before. Yeah. The way I actually talk about it is is this. Think of it as as a grid with two axes. So there's a vertical axis asking who's up, who's down, and there's a horizontal axis asking how close or distant are we. So in one case, we've got equality on one end of the vertical axis, hierarchy on the uh, other, and for the closeness distance, you've got equality, you've got closeness or distance. I make the point that all of us in every conversation have to balance these two dynamics. How close or distant do we want to be? And is somebody one up and somebody one down? We always are asking that at every moment in every interaction. But it seems that girls and women tend to focus more on the, is this way of speaking, is this conversation bringing us closer or pushing us farther apart? And boys and men seem to be more inclined to focus on the question, who's up, who's down? Is this putting one of us in a one up or a one down position? 
they're both there all the time, and that's really important because even that troubles talk conversation, right, that I'm saying it makes women closer. I say, oh, I have this problem I'm so worried about, and the other person says, oh, I know, you know, the same thing happened to me. Very often, the same thing happened to me is really something worse happened to me. So it can feel like I'm trying to one-up you by having a worse problem. So that competition can be there, even in the conversation that seems to be about being close and distant. Also important, it's not that we always want to be close. It's that we're asking, is this bringing us closer or putting us farther apart? So you might be offended by something because it's claiming too much closeness and you don't want that much closeness with that person. But just a quick example about how the same conversation could be interpreted from either perspective. It actually was a year that I was spending at Princeton, so it was on the Princeton campus, walking along with a colleague and one of our older male colleagues. I was with talking to a female colleague, male colleague kind of appeared. And it was one of these crisp fall days. It was kind of chilly. And she said to him, we greeted each other, and she said, well, where's your coat? And he said, thanks, Mom. And when he walked away, she turned to me and said, what was that all about? And I said, I think I know <laughs> that she was making a friendly comment to just show I'm thinking about you, you know, concerned about you, but it wasn't meant very literally. But he heard it as this is the kind of thing a mother says to a kid. Where's your coat? Where's your galoshes? And both are right. It was just a friendly thing to say, but he's right. It is the kind of thing a mother would say to a kid. But it was, they had different, their antenna were tuned to different channels. And that's the way I sometimes talk about it. Let me ask a somewhat foundational question here. Is, is there a theory embedded in your work in why men and women have these differing communication styles? I personally don't feel I have any expertise that would allow me to know why. I see my field as descriptive, same way that most of us linguists don't prescribe grammar rules. We just describe what we see people saying, and we look for patterns in the way they use language. To the extent that I explain it, I tend to trace it to kids' socialization. But that's a little bit of a cop-out. I don't really know. It's certainly very possible that the reason kids develop these different styles comes from somewhere. I guess I wonder, on the one hand, how we could know. I guess one thing is anthropological perspective. If you see patterns that are characterize women and men and girls and boys in vastly different cultures of the world, you start thinking maybe there's some biological components here. But... I guess part of what intrigues me is I'm so often, I was always, when I the book came out and I was talking about it a lot, I'd always be asked, is it biological or is it cultural? And I was intrigued by several things. First of all, the people who asked me usually thought they knew the answer. Some people would be convinced it's all biological and they were ready to think that I was ridiculous if I said it was cultural. And some people were convinced that it was all cultural and were ready to demonize me if I said it was biological. It tended to be the women who wanted it all to be cultural, and it tended to be the men that wanted it to be biological. So that itself was interesting to me, and I wondered why. And I think possibly a part of it could be a sense among women that the argument it's biological can be used against us. 
you know, way back when women were not allowed to go to college, the argument was biological. It was a medical doctor professor at Harvard who gave a speech that women should not be allowed to attend higher attend college because all the blood that was needed for their fetuses would go to their brains and the babies would not develop normally. Checks out. <laughs> Seems like a yeah. solid so theory. This, yeah, and I think the feeling for many men is was, well, if it's biological, you can't blame me if there mm-hmm. are no female CEOs. So, right. yeah, I think probably in reality it's some inextricable combination of biological and cultural influence, but that's a long way of saying I don't feel that my own training equips me to say mm-hmm. where it comes from. It equips me to describe what I see. The, the female CEO point is a, is a good bridge to your work on communicating in the workplace, which I've given a lot of thought to. It's something that Vox.com is, aside from me, mostly female managers, and my senior leadership team is overwhelmingly female. And something that I have learned a lot about communication from working with people like Melissa Bell, who's been on this podcast, and people should go check out that episode. And one of the things I, I really did learn along the way had to do with that closer hierarchical dimension where my tendency was to try to not bother other people with meetings because I don't really enjoy being bothered with meetings. But a lot of my leadership team felt that they were being left out of things and they wanted to be there as in part and, and to make sure they're being consulted and and told in part as a as a space of making sure everybody was still close and on good communication terms and, and so on. And that was something that I really had to develop to be a better partner in all this. But I, I'd be very curious to just hear you give a bit of an overview of that research because I, I found it personally extremely relevant and helpful. Yes. And I write about just that phenomenon in the book, Talking from 9 to 5, men that until I had not had women working for them before would, I'm thinking of one in particular, he was completely upset because women suddenly came into his office and said, if you don't like our work, tell us, you know, don't. And she said, what, what, why do you think I don't like your work? Because you never say anything, which they had, he had taken to mean, if I don't say anything, everything's fine. And they had taken to mean, if you don't tell me what's going on, I'm assuming something bad that you're reluctant to say. When I asked women managers, what makes a good manager or what makes you a good manager? She'd say, I treat the people who work for me like equals. When I asked men what makes a good manager, they said, I hire good people and get out of their way. So if you hire good people and get out of their way, they're going to feel slighted and ignored and (laughs) think you're thinking terrible things that you're not saying. Good chance they will if they're women. And uh, the feeling, and I really love that, I treat the people who work for me like equals course they're not equals. There's hierarchy there. You're the boss. (laughs) But if you talk in a way that emphasizes that, that's breaking the rules of the way girls were socialized. The girl in power is not supposed to flaunt it. I was actually being interviewed when the book came out by a journalist who told me that for the first time he was coaching girls teams. He had always coached boys teams. And he assumed he could walk in and immediately see who the really good athletes were because in boys teams, you can see right away by the way they act and the way the other boys treat them. And with the girls, it took them a long time to figure it out because the really good athletes were expending a lot of effort to downplay how good they were Mm. and not act like they were better than anybody else. 
exactly what the women in the workplace were telling me their pattern was. So how did this come about? So the book You Just Didn't Understand comes out. It's been on the bestseller list nearly four years. I guess at the time this happened, maybe it had been on two, three years. And I was getting contacted by people in various corporations, and they were all saying the same thing. We're hiring women and men at the same time. The women are as qualified as the men, or in many cases, more qualified. Five years down the line, the men are moving up, and the women are either stuck or they leave. Is there something going on with ways of speaking related to what you write in your book? They said to me, and I said, it could be, but I don't know. I really didn't study the workplace, but I'd like to. And so several of these corporations worked with me. They got volunteers, equal numbers of women and men, to wear or carry tape recorders for a week and record everything they said at work. And then I got them transcribed, and then I went to work and followed these these target people and recorded myself, but got to know them and interviewed all of their peers, all of their superiors, and all of their subordinates. One of the companies, and they don't mind my saying their name, it was Chevron Overseas Petroleum in San Ramon, California. And I went up to the CEO, and the same happened in Corning, in Corning, New York. Went up to the, spent a day with the CEO, as well as people in the mailroom. Got to know the whole, whole organization. And sure enough, what I found was there were ways that the women were speaking, this is management level, that was designed to save face for the people they were talking to so they didn't seem too big for their britches. And it was often being misinterpreted, misread as she lacks confidence or even she lacks competence. And so examples would be telling people what to do. A woman in a position of management might say it in a way that it sounds almost like a suggestion or like a question. Do you think you could uh, get this done by four? And she's heard as she's the manager, but she doesn't feel like she can even tell somebody to get her something by four. The perspective of the women was people who are these guys are throwing their weight around. They must really lack confidence. They think they have to boss people around to get what they want done. I'm the boss. Of course, they're going to do what I want them to do. So I don't have to say it in a way that's going to rub their nose in it. And for the most part, the work got done. The problem wasn't with subordinates understanding what they wanted done, especially if the subordinates were women. But it was how they were being evaluated by their bosses. There were definitely instances of misunderstanding if the subordinate was was a man. In the sense that the subordinate would not know that a direct request was being made? Yes, yes, Mm -hmm. yes. So um, an example was actually this was an anecdotal example from a bookstore. It was a local Washington bookstore that you all know. The owner had to have talk with the manager because he was supposed to do something, hadn't done it. They were able to trace it to a conversation where she had said, the bookkeeper needs help with the billing. How would you feel about helping her out? And he said, fine. But what he meant was, fine, I'll think about how I would feel about helping her out. (laughs) And I spoke to both of them. It's not that he didn't intend to do it. He didn't understand he was being asked to do it now. Mm -hmm. He thought it was something that would be good to do when he got around to it because of the way it was asked. How would you feel about helping her out? I spoke to her a couple months later and asked how things were going. And she said, fine, we don't have any more problem. And I said, 
have you changed your way of asking him to do things? And she said, no, but now he knows how I mean it. (laughs) (laughs) Now, of course, she's the owner, so it's pretty straightforward. He's got to figure out how she means it or she'll fire him. (laughs) But in a large corporation, it uh, it isn't that straightforward or easy I was actually giving a talk at a at a university, a college, and the president told me that she had been overheard talking to her secretary by a member of the board of trustees, and he had heard her say, talk in this face-saving, I would call it face-saving way to the secretary, something like, could you do me a favor and do this? And he took her aside and he said, don't forget, you're the president. So he felt that she was not having the proper authority, whereas, in fact, she was expressing authority in the way that seemed appropriate to her. And it's really striking that women in positions of authority are more likely to do this with subordinates than with people above them in the hierarchy because it's saving face for the person you're talking to. That's interesting. And I've been told by people at various corporations that if somebody has to do something really like bell the cat, you know, has to tell a superior something he's not going to want to hear, it will often end up being a woman because men are more likely to talk in a self-deprecating way when they're talking to a superior Women are more likely to talk in a self-deprecating way when they're talking to a subordinate because it's all about saving face for the subordinate. And so what does that imply about organizations run by men versus organizations run by women? How much does this kind of communication style to work have to filter down? I think the norms in most workplaces have been set long ago by men. This is an interesting example. Um, this book called Women Lawyers by Mona Harrington, and I cited in Talking Mind Five. She interviewed women who had left large corporations and set, set up their own law firm and were trying to do it differently. So she interviews these three women who set up an alternative law firm. What are some of the things they did differently? They tried to make all decisions in a group, so they would have meetings, make decisions by agreement. They also shared their money, apparently. So if somebody did well, everybody everybody um, got more. But what really fascinated me, they said that if they, that they felt they did better by being less aggressive. So in a deposition, for example, rather than being as aggressive as they could, they would be gentle. They would kind of act like they were on your side. And the person being deposed would kind of lose track of the fact that this was an opponent, an opposing lawyer. They felt that they did better because they were better at listening, which is, I know, something that you came up with in your study of uh, talking to people about Hillary Clinton and what was so great about her, how she was able to accomplish so much and all the jobs that she did. And listening kept coming up. Well, these women lawyers said the same thing. They felt that they were better at listening and at reading people, but they never talked about it when they tried to get clients Mm -hmm. because they felt that if they were honest and really even tried to explain, we do it differently and it's even more effective, it's better, they would be seen as weak. So what they did was emphasize that they were tough, they were tough litigators, they were seasoned litigators. They were out there in the in the tough world of law and would be as tough as the next guy. 
this is in, in part my backdoor way of getting to the Clinton, Trump and Clinton potential White House discussion. But it reminded me of a story. I listened, David Oxelrod, the former Obama chief strategist, has a, a great interview podcast that people should check out. And he interviewed Tim Kaine, Hillary Clinton's vice presidential candidate. And Kaine told a story that from that perspective is, I think, really interesting. The story told was that right after the convention, Kane and his wife and President Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton went on a bus tour and they were coming into the next day, Somerset, Ohio, Somerset, and then the next day in Ohio. And so on one day, uh, they're coming into Somerset and, and Kane asks some question about, about Somerset and Bill Clinton goes on a 45 minute, incredibly brilliant, you know, new down to the precinct level, the granular data, what, what Kane calls a sort of PhD level disquisition on this county they're going into. And it's, it's amazing. It's a real example of, of Clinton's sort of polymath nature. Next day, they're going this county in Ohio. And Kane asks a question about this county in Ohio. And Hillary Clinton goes, oh, that's a good question. And she calls over a 28-year-old staffer and says, hey, come here. We want to ask you a couple of questions about this area of Ohio that either you're from or you know or whatever. And Kane says, for the exact same amount of time, Hillary Clinton asks questions of this 28-year-old staffer. And he, and he says, at the end of both efforts... We had a lot more information about the underlying county. But at the end of, of Hillary Clinton's, we also had this 28-year-old staffer who felt forever loyal to Hillary Clinton because he had now gotten all this attention from her and from Bill Clinton and from Tim Kaine. And he, he felt like the expert and was, you know, he, as Kane put it, felt 10 feet tall. I haven't written this up yet, but I keep meaning to because it's a tremendous illustration of – the differences between them and a way in which I think the differences between them are almost always coded in President Bill Clinton's favor, despite not necessarily being that way for governance, which is the thing that he did there is really good on the campaign trail. It's really good in public. It's really good on television. Being able to do that extemporaneous 45-minute lecture on this random county and wherever is an excellent way to make people enjoy coming to your rally. <laughs> What Hillary Clinton did doesn't work for campaigning at all, but does work for winning allies and building coalitions and governance. And getting things done. And getting and potentially getting things done. Because she's learning something. But that's what, what struck me about these two things is uh, and, and talking to you was incredibly helpful for this for this piece I wrote on, on Clinton, but how much harder it is to see that kind of leadership style, how much more public the stereotypically male leadership style is than the stereotypically female leadership style, even though that publicness is not necessarily related to efficacy. In You Just Don't Understand, I have a section heading public and private speaking. And a lot of the patterns that I describe fall into that. I give this anecdote early on. I was invited by a women's group to address this gathering in somebody's living room. They invited men for the time I was there. And there was a couple sitting on the couch. And they were noticeable because throughout the entire evening, as I spoke, the woman never said anything, and the man talked a lot, made comments, asked questions, was very noticeable in the evening. And then I got to the point in my talk where I was talking about the end-of-day conversation. Come out at the end of day, and she tells about everything happened, and she asks him, and he says, nothing much. 
And he spoke up, <laughs> and he pointed to the woman sitting silently beside him and said, she's the talker in our family. <laughs> and everybody laughed, and he looked a little bit hurt, and he said, but it's true. At the end of the day, when we come home, she talks all evening, and if she didn't, we'd spend the evening in silence. Huh. Private speaking. He was doing the public speaking. She was doing the private speaking. And because we're expected to do it that way, and I think part of the reason women often don't speak in public is that they're aware that a lot of people don't like it. Studies have shown that if women speak equally to men, people think they've spoken more because they don't expect the women to speak. And we have all these negative views of, of women talking too much and going way, way back in you know colonial period, women are stereotyped as talking too much and there were horrible punishments for women for talking too much or saying the wrong thing. Or, and so women are cautious and they feel they have to watch what they say. For us, talk comes into its own in the private conversation with people you're close to, where talk is the way you create closeness. And for if you're using talk, as many boys and men have learned to, to kind of make sure you get the status you deserve, that you get the respect you deserve. You don't need to do that at home with people that you're close to. Mm -hmm. It's when you're out in public that you need to make sure that you get the respect you deserve by talking and getting all eyes looking at you, which many women feel uncomfortable with. Madeline Kunin in her she wrote a book about entering public life, said the hardest thing for her was learning to speak up in public. She says the way she finally got herself to do it was to think about how important it was for the causes that she was speaking in favor of. Nothing to do with herself getting attention, but what she wanted to accomplish. So I want to go back to a study you just pointed out, because it's a great inlet to something I'd love to talk about. You mentioned this study where when men and women speak the same amount in public, the perception of how much they've spoken is very different. And I think that's super important. When I was preparing for this interview, I read a piece that you wrote in the Washington Post, which I, I wish I had read 10 months ago. You were able to take a discussion that had, I think is very tricky that has been had on this podcast and many other places in this election and, and frame it in a very smart way. And you wrote that the question we face is subtler, more complicated, and harder to address than, do I vote for her because she's a woman? Rather, it's, can I be sure I'm judging this candidate accurately, given the double bind that confronts all women in positions of authority? And, and what I found so interesting about that was that it took something that is a, a question that we use as a question between candidates. And it turned it to a question between us and the candidate, between us and our ability to perceive the candidate clearly. So I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about how that double bind, how our gendered expectations of women maybe make it hard for us to see candidates, female candidates, as clearly as we see male candidates, if that's the right interpretation. Yeah, to see whether our reactions are are giving us a good sense of who she is and what her capabilities are. So the double bind is more complicated than a double standard. Double standard means we are judging women by a different standard than we judge men. It's unfair, but they can meet that standard. And you know, maybe it uh, required them to do more than the men did, but they can meet it. A double bind has no good outcome 
it's a situation where you have two requisites, but anything you do to fulfill one actually violates the other. A candidate has to fulfill requirements for a good person and requirements for a good leader. For men, a good person and a good leader pretty much are similar qualities. Be forceful, be confident, be strong, be opinionated, be emotional but angry if something is unjust. The requirements for a good woman are the opposite. They are at odds with our expectations and requirements for a good leader. You can't be strong. You're supposed to be self-effacing. You're supposed to be gentle, not strong. You're not supposed to be tough. You're supposed to be sensitive. You're supposed to be emotional, but not angry. That one is not acceptable. And all the other subtle ways we expect women to be the smiling would be a perfect example. So Hillary Clinton was frequently criticized that she didn't smile, and she was interpreted as being angry because she didn't smile. That is something that all women have experienced. If I am speaking to an audience, I'll often say, have you ever been to everybody in the audience, have you ever just been walking down the street, lost in thought, minding your own business, and somebody says, cheer up, it's not so bad. <laughs> All women have this happen to us because you're supposed to smile. Mm-hmm. On the contrary, men will be suspected if they do smile. What's he smiling about? You're not expected to. Yeah. Donald Trump is both not a, a huge smiler and did not take a lot of shit for it over the course of the election. Exactly. It's such a good point. Yeah. How many people said, why isn't he smiling? Hillary Clinton was frequently criticized for not smiling. During the debates, she did frequently smile. Mm-hmm. She got criticized for smiling. This is it seri- looked inauthentic. And- it would, well, they think this is serious. You know, she, she, who told her to smile so much? Mm-hmm. This is serious business here. It's serious and you're expected to be... You know, to not smile, that would be good for a leader, but it's not good for a woman. Smiling, that's good for women. In fact, it's expected of women. Women, And and we know, and I found it in my own work too, women do smile more than men. And if we don't smile, it's interpreted negatively. So she can't win. And the thing that is so troubling about this is that we react as people the way we would react to people in everyday life. And we don't realize that our reactions are being shaped by the gender of the person speaking. She was always being told, for example, she shouldn't yell. Why is she yelling? Stop shouting. Well, if you're addressing thousands of people in, a, uh, in an auditorium, you have to shout. And all candidates shout. But it isn't noticed when a man's shouting. It's noticed because she's a woman and she's, quote, shouting. Somebody I was talking to said, it has nothing to do with her with her being a woman. It's just that she's shrill. Well, when's the last time you heard the word shrill applied to a man? These are lenses through which we look at women that shape what we think of them as people. And we don't realize that the reason we're reacting the way we are is because expectations of a woman are at odds with expectations for a leader. So I think a lot of these reactions, this feeling that she isn't authentic comes from that. Or what you hear people asking, I don't know, I just don't like her. Of course, this whole issue of likability is an issue only for women and not men. You don't hear male candidates being judged about whether they're likable. And this has been talked about with respect to Hillary nonstop, as long as she's been on the in the public stage. 
So let me ask a couple of questions about that. And, and let me try to take the skeptical position here. So likable, for instance, I think you do hear about men being discussed as not likable. George H.W. Bush, I think, was discussed as not particularly likable. John Kerry was discussed as not particularly likable. And, and you'll hear also around some of the, the debate around women. One thing that I heard a lot during the primary was people who said, yeah, it's true. I do think Hillary Clinton is inauthentic or shrill or X, but I don't think that about Elizabeth Warren. What I think on Twitter you call like like hashtag not all women. <laughs> I mean to to bring this up seriously, not as something knocked down, but as something I think creates confusion for people in themselves when they're when they're trying to work through this question. Because the people I spoke to about this were trying to honestly ask themselves: it has to be legal to dislike Hillary Clinton, oh, sure. right? You yeah, know, yeah, I mean yeah. that has to be an okay <laughs> thing to do. Yeah, sure. There are plenty of politicians of of both genders I, I like and don't like. And it can sometimes, I think, feel to people like an impossible game with shifting rules about what you are and aren't allowed to say, and particularly when you have those views about people of both genders. So how do you distinguish? How do you think about making those distinctions? I think it's a, a definitely a fair question. There are many other things about Hillary Clinton mm -hmm. other than her being female. Two major ones that come to mind. One is this feeling that she's scripted, that she's watching her words. Right. I think part of that is personality. She herself has said, I'm not a natural politician. I think what she's kind of referring to is that she's probably an introvert. And outgoing people become more animated and more themselves when they have an audience. And introverted people become more cautious when there's an audience. So I think that's part of what's going on. I have trouble imagining what it would do to someone to be partnered to someone who is considered one of the best political orders of all time, and then to constantly be told you're not as good at political oratory as that person, even though you're supposed to continue doing it. I have a lot of trouble imagining how I would like keep my self-esteem <laughs> about – when I hear her say I'm not a natural politician, what I hear is – I have been told for 30 years I'm not as good at this as my husband. Yeah, but I still have to come out and do it every day because <laughs> I want to do the other parts of the job that I think I am good at. Absolutely. I mean, she's always, Bill Clinton is probably the most gifted public speaker of our time. So that's – and because they're next to each other, that's always a comparison. But I suspect people would have those questions anyway. Mm -hmm. And I do think – some of it is just, again, personality. Yeah, totally. Introvert, I didn't mean to... Introvert. No, no, it's a good point no. to make. Introvert versus extrovert, I think, is probably a big part of that. But another thing I think that she has been subjected to that is a huge part of this, this is another whole part of my research. This book I wrote called The Argument Culture uh, was published back in 1998. And I talk there about our tendency to make everything into a fight. I talk about the press, politics, and law. Because of our placing more positive value on attack and critique than on other forms of discourse, the press has been far more critical of public figures in recent years than they were in the past. And I have lots of examples of that. People who had been in the public eye 30, 40 years ago and now are saying it's the climate has changed. I quote, Somebody was talking to a gentleman, and I apologize. I don't have the na name. And Well, that's women apologize. There you go. That's another example right there. Talking to a journalist who said, that's our job. We have to write a negative story about you every day. 
Our job is to write negative stories. It didn't used to be that way. So you've got politics becoming far more adversarial. So oppositional research has gotten more and more prominent. It always was there, but Mm -hmm. it's just become a proportionately bigger part of political campaigns. And you've got the press valuing attack and scandal. And the press is also... Media are now under a lot of pressure to get audience and readers. It used to be given. People read the paper. They watched the news. You had your audience. Now you've got – you're terrified every minute you're going to lose the audience because someone else's story is going to get more attention. These two things have come together and subjected people in public life to tremendous amount of criticism. And the Clintons in particular have been – the object of lots of Republican right-wing. I know she talked about a vast right-wing conspiracy and people laughed at it, but there's some truth to that. So Whitewater, and more recently Benghazi emails, but Whitewater, huge banner headlines in the New York Times, coverage way out of proportion to anything, and it actually turned out uh, independent prosecutor, people going to jail, Endless, endless scandal, and it turned out there was literally nothing to it. There have been books written about this. Dean Lyons' book, Fools for Scandal, is a particularly convincing one. There was an article in the um, Columbia Journalism Review at the time that actually showed that the mainstream media were getting their tips that they were putting in the headlines from this obscure right-wing organization called Citizens United. And that's what it was all coming from, Citizens United. And they were just picking it up and putting it in the headlines. So all of this is by way of saying that some of the caution that we see in Hillary Clinton being scripted and not being transparent and not wanting to give press conferences, I think a big part of it is what we call the observer's paradox. You want to study something, but the fact that you're studying it changes it. Mm -hmm. A lot of what the press is seeing in her behavior that they are critical of, the lack of transparency and the scriptedness, is a reaction to the way she's been treated by the press over the years. Which is interesting because it also doesn't make it not true. One of the often observed dynamics of the incredibly dysfunctional relationship between Hillary Clinton and the press is that she does get both warranted, but also a lot of unwarranted scrutiny, which leads to her being unusually secretive and non-transparent and sort of anti-press for a politician, which leads to a where, well, if she's being so non-transparent and secretive, she's probably hiding something, leads to more scrutiny classic, than often. Classic vicious cycle. Exactly. Yeah. But, you, but I, do you remember that there was a little thing, I guess it was, I don't know, a year ago or so, where the New York Times had a headline that she was the subject of a criminal inquiry. Yeah. And then it turned out it wasn't criminal and it wasn't focused on her. Right. And they eventually corrected it and apologized, but it took a while and it yeah. was in the back page, whereas the misinformation was on the front page. But at that time, Margaret Sullivan, the um, public editor, had a column about it. And she said, well, it's true. We have had a dedicated somebody exclusively assigned to following her since something like 2013. Well, if someone's whole job is to follow her, of course they're going to come up with some something suspicious every other day. Yeah, well, I, I want to put some of the, the individual pieces yeah. of this aside because you, okay, you can— sure. 
it is so easy to get lost in the land <laughs> yeah, of right, which Clinton right. scandals pan out and which ones don't. But but the thing that I I think we are looking at a, a scenario where she is likely to be elected president. She's already promised that she will have a cabinet that is gender balanced, among other things. And so we are for the first time going to see a female leadership style. And I think it's important. Hillary Clinton, because your point that broad dynamics don't describe individuals is true. Hillary Clinton does have a, a, a female leadership style. When I did this work on her and was trying to understand this difference between her public and private personas, uh, as you mentioned, the thing that came up again and again is how much she leads by listening, which is not something a lot of male politicians do. A lot of them lead by, by talking and telling their subordinates what to do. She's a very different approach. I'm curious how you think that will, having studied female-led workplaces, how you think that will change the mechanics of a White House. It's funny to say we haven't seen this before, but we actually haven't seen it before. Yeah. I would add the second piece that you described, too, though. She listens and then acts on what she learned. Mm -hmm. So that's, I think, as big a part of it or even a bigger part of it. What people constantly said about her, she, she, she gets things done. Probably the leadership style will be different. How much of it will be public is open to question. Mm -hmm. It may be like the women lawyers that I referred to who are getting more done because of their style, but they don't talk about it. You know, keep that keep that behind the scenes and talk as if you were doing it the same old way because you're going to get more credit for that. So that'll be that'll be interesting to see. I think the important thing that you uh, that line you quoted earlier, how do we check with ourselves that where our reactions are accurate given how different the expectations are for how we think a woman and a man should speak. So if we constantly stop and ask ourselves, try to make that switch in your head, would I react the same way if it were a man or if it were a woman talking the same way? In other words, the person of the opposite sex than we're responding to. And we also need to be careful, maybe look with some scrutiny at how people are being described and what image we're getting from the description. We think it's just a description, but it's really an interpretation. Mm. Women and men are talked about differently. So I'm switching the topic a little more, but I just wanted to get that no, in No, I there. think it's an interesting yeah. point. Quick examples. We generally say that men pass out and women faint. Huh. Your sense of a person fainting is, is weaker than right. your sense of a person passing out. There was a, uh, a column in the Times where it was actually one praising her, but the writer said it was after the first debate where everybody was saying what a great job she had done. He said it was amazing. She was like a seamstress, the way she threaded the needle of uh, something or other. Mm -hmm. Well, a seamstress, yeah, it's true. It It requires skill, but... The skills that they're usually applied to is something rather trivial compared to what she was up there doing. And also that she was a sorceress because she had come out being the one forward thinking, even though, in fact, she's been in public life so long. Well, sorceress, that is getting dangerously close to calling her a witch, <laughs> which is this kind of um, label that's often not very far from people's consciousness when you're talking about powerful women. This is a, an interesting space because this is a, exactly where I'd, I'd love to get your help thinking through, I think, the, the common objection here, which is to say that 
I think somebody could go through and look at descriptions of Donald Trump or Barack Obama and find unusual and unusually coded descriptions of them. And there can be a, well, look, we said about Donald Trump that he's like a policeman or, a, you know, whatever it might be. And how come it's only sexist or how come it's only gendered when the description goes that way or, or sorceress? I mean, people have often talked about Obama's almost mystical powers with a crowd. And I think that something because, you know, we write about this a lot at Vox and, you know, this is a lot of, of some of the pushback we'll get. And, and I, I'm curious how you think about when it is fair to say that something is coded versus when, you know, yes, we have right. to say, well, people use analogies. Yeah. If it's code, then you have to then you have to ask yourself, am I is it in my mind? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like the, the most recent one, Nasty Woman. Right. You know, what was that code for? Sure. But also but, Bill, Donald Trump has been called yeah. terrible things. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Not, not necessarily by Hillary Clinton the same way, but that yeah. I agree that moment sort of struck everybody. It struck me for sure. But I mean, the things I've said about Donald Trump are, are worse than nasty man. <laughs> sure. Sure. And, and by the way, it was funny the moment he said it because she, what she had just said was not particularly bad. She had said something about this new regulation, and then we'll have to pay taxes unless you find a way out of it. Right. It's kind of almost like a good-natured jive. It's not particularly nasty. Um, she was very masterful at the debate at jabbing him in ways that were almost too fast for the audience to really catch, <laughs> but that created an outsized response in him. It really seemed to me that they figured out with him a character flaw is a lack of proportionality. But Yeah, okay. <laughs> right, right, right. Anyway, your question about that you're going to get a lot of criticism for saying this is sexist because men are subjected to far worse and, you know, why are we making a big deal about this? First of all, I don't think the word sexist is helpful at all. Mm -hmm. I never use it. Even oh, though they'll, they'll always stick it on the headline of th something I wrote, but I never use it because I don't think it helps. It doesn't, who knows what sexist, I mean, what does that really mean? But what I what I try to do is point to specific linguistic phenomena and what's the effect of them. There's a concept we have in linguistics, markedness. Something is marked, it stands out, it has a special feature added to it that carries meaning. The basic form of verbs is present tense. If you don't add anything to a verb, it's present. If you want to say past, you've got to mark it for past, ed visited. Mm -hmm. If you want to say future, you got to mark it for future. Will. We will visit. Nouns are the unmarked case of nouns is singular. If this is in English, if you want to make it plural, you got to mark it for plural. You add an S or an ES. The standard person in our culture, but maybe all, is male. It gets marked for female. Mm -hmm. Sorceress is marked with the ESS ending. ESS endings mark things for female. And they add meaning beyond female that were not intended. Huh. Um, so I'll often say, would you entrust your life to a doctoress? <laughs> when you add the ESS ending, technically it just adds female, but it also adds trivial, less significant, less worthy of respect. That's why many actors now object to actress. They say all actors should be actors. And then other people object, but I need to know if it's female or male. Um, I think you can probably function whether, without knowing, but, <laughs> but the reason for the objection is the ESS ending adds a kind of trivialness to the meaning. And I actually heard a, 
I sometimes quote, it was an actor, um, Alfre Woodard, I think her name was, uh, said, um, actresses worry about their makeup and cellulite. Actors worry about the character they're playing. It's more serious. The adding the ESS, marking it for female, trivializes the, the meaning. So that's why there's more coded. We can talk about ways that feminizing endings or ways that people talk about women are marked in ways that talking about men aren't because it's just standard, mm-hmm. doesn't carry any extra meaning. So something that I think is going to be a, a fascinating sub-theme here, we are in a moment in, a, in, in politics, a moment different than the moment we were in, say, 40 years ago, where private politicking has been defined as intrinsically suspect where backroom deals have, to your point about marking, a negative connotation. There's nothing specifically wrong with being in a backroom. I mean, that's how a deal gets made. But to say a backroom deal is is to say something specifically negative. Being part of the establishment is to say something negative about someone. Something that struck me quite a bit during the primary was the ways in which Hillary Clinton's political strengths, which are she's very good at building coalitions, very good at getting endorsements, very good at impressing her colleagues, all of which have relevance to to the work of the presidency were, were coded as part of the establishment, part of mm. politics as usual, whereas Bernie Sanders' sort of more traditional strengths of being a very charismatic orator, being a more sort of in, in some ways pure and inspiring public figure, that fit the moment better for people. And something I think we're going to see is Clinton is going to try to bring back a somewhat older version of political wheeling and dealing. It's what she's good at. It's how she worked in the Senate. And you saw this begin to, to come through. The, and I think it's going to be responded to quite negatively in a lot of, of cases. And you saw this begin when that line came out in the emails that you need a public and a private position. On, on some level, I think that is the most banal possible thing you could say in American politics. Barack Obama always has a public and a private position. Paul Ryan ha- – I mean the deals are – you know, you have a negotiating position and a private one. And yet I think that we are about to see a sort of a collision between a – the first female president who has I think somewhat stereotypically alliance building and more private communication oriented skills and a moment in American politics where we've become extremely suspect of private communication and deal-making and alliance building. And I'm curious how you think that will play out. It's interesting. Yeah. And it's dovetailing, again, with what I call the argument culture, that people are looking for negative things and a kind of assumption that anything going on in private is suspect and we're going to reveal it. And you get the uh, thrill of getting private communications exposed all the time. And that in itself makes people sure they're going to see something uh, unseemly. They make the assumption that people are doing things in private that are are going to be damaging if they come out in public. It's been interesting with the emails how little has come out. But still, people are trying to make something of it because of the assumption that we're going to get to see something and it's got to be bad. It dovetails with the suspicion of politics and politicians. The notion of public service doesn't even seem to exist anymore. You assume that people are entering public service for their own self-aggrandizement, not to actually do good in the world. 
to have a little footnote here and not um, keep getting back to the women are better, um, though I know it's going to sound like that. Some years ago, Marjorie Margolis Mesvinsky wrote a book. Marjorie Margolis, but I think at the time it was Ms. Vinsky wrote a book because she was part of what was called the Year of the Woman, the first year that there was a significant number of women in the Congress. And she wrote about that. And there's a footnote there where she quotes one of the men in Congress as saying, gee, you women actually came here to get things done. We came here to to uh, advance our careers. <laughs> And it was not her. It was she was quoting one of her male colleagues having said that. So I think there is some some evidence that that there's actually less self-aggrandizing behind the scenes to be exposed with women in public life. But people are still going to be looking for it. And yeah, I mean, I think it's going to be a constant challenge. And I hope that people, as observers and as readers, will. It's another level of this step back and ask ourselves, are we reacting in a way that accurately represents the abilities of the person we're judging? And ask themselves, is this really such a destructive thing or is it using methods that work to get things done? So we have a question we always ask people at the end of this podcast, which is, what are three books that have influenced you and that, that you would recommend? <laughs> I don't know if I would recommend them. Um, <laughs> many of the theories that I uh, have applied in my work come from Gregory Bateson, anthropologist, and his essays are included in a book called A Theory of Play and Fantasy. A Theory of Play and Fantasy? A Theory fantasy. of Play and Fantasy. And sorry, fantasy. That's, yeah. sorry, A Theory of Play and Fantasy is the essay on framing that I always get back to. Steps to an Ecology of Mind is the... I don't know if everybody would like it as much as I do, but that was a very formative book for me. Books of Oliver Sacks. Mm -hmm. I believe that he, by describing the extreme forms that she, of human behavior that he has observed, he's revealing things that are true of all of us in everyday life. My all-time favorite book is Moby Dick. Is that going to help anybody? That, that, I think that'll <laughs> help everybody. Uh, Deborah Tannen, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you to Deborah Tannen for the time she spent. I found that a, a really interesting, enlightening conversation. I hope you did too. Thank you to all of you for taking the time and tuning into this podcast each week. Thank you to my producer, AC Valdez. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox.com and Panoply production, and it will be back next week.